say, right now I'm in the chaotic period of trying to finish up my oral board case lists and I'm trying to like frantically remember what in the heck I was doing way back when I was a chief resident. And thank God there is the OBG project to help remind me of some of these things. Yeah, the OBG project has been great for studying for oral boards because I'm in the exact same place as you are. What's even better is that I have their subscription service, OBG First, which allows me to create my own bookshelf so that I can go back to all the articles that I've been reading about GYN that I've forgotten. If you're a chief resident, you can get that OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, creagsrivertocoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and you can sign up. And if you're a resident, you actually can get access to the core, which is a resident curriculum. I actually have a new feature on here called the Resident Core Life Hacks Library, which I'm going to have to go check out. You can also check out the sidebar on our website to get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Kriyas over coffee. So today we're going to be talking about blood transfusions. Um, but even more excitingly, today is the first day that we're actually recording together in like, what, a whole year, Nick? I know. Welcome to Seattle, Faye. Thanks. It's been pretty awesome. So what are we going to be learning about today, Nick? So... We'll talk about what the different components of blood are that we use for transfusion, discuss the appropriate time to use each of those different components. We'll review broadly the risks and benefits of blood transfusion. And then finally, we'll talk a bit about managing the patient who declines blood transfusion um, and also just overall blood management strategies, kind of trying to minimize blood transfusion requirements. So Faye, I feel like this is a silly question to ask because like blood is blood, but what's in blood anyways? Yeah, um, I feel like by the end, blood is going to start sounding like a weird word to us. So let's first talk about whole blood. So whole blood is basically all of the things in blood and we could actually transfuse whole blood and that contains everything that we're going to talk about. And so, you know, when we think about it, when we actually donate blood, most of the time we're donating whole blood. So Whole blood is composed of, first and foremost, red blood cells. Um, And often when you order this, you might find it called packed red blood cells in your hospital. And the reason they're called that is because um, what happens is they actually take whole blood and centrifuge it to separate out just the red blood cells. And usually other additives will be placed, um, such as things like citrate, dextrose, and adenine to preserve the cells and keep them alive. And usually red blood cells can be refrigerated for up to 42 days in the United States and can be good for that amount of time unless they're frozen, in which case they can be good for up to 10 years. Um, Usually one unit is from one donor, and the idea is that one unit should raise the hemoglobin by about one point. And overall, volume is anywhere between 220 to 340 cc's. And the reason this can be different is because it depends on the original hematocrit of the donor. Most of the time, however, they try to standardize it to about 250 cc's, at least at my hospital. The reasons why we use it is if a patient or you don't have enough 
red blood cells and we try and give you back the red blood cells. But in seriousness, it should be considered in patients who have acute blood loss anemia or those who are symptomatic. And usually we can start to think about transfusion if the hemoglobin is less than eight when not at baseline for a patient. And again, if they're symptomatic. And most of the time we would recommend transfusing if the hemoglobin is less than seven, if the patient is postpartum or postoperative or there is some type of wound healing that may need to occur. And also in other cases, things like sickle cell disease where transfusion um, can be used to prevent a sickle crisis. Some things to know before transfusion is that someone should be typed and crossed so that they can get blood that matches their own. And if they don't, their bodies can create antibodies against the donated blood, which can then lead to alloimmunization as well as a lot of other bad things. This is a problem, you know, in certain people for future pregnancies. So to learn more about that, see our episode on alloimmunization. The only exception to this usually is massive transfusion or exsanguination protocols in hospitals when there's no time to type and cross-match somebody, and most of the time people will just get O-negative blood. Some people will still have a fever or other small allergic reaction to the blood, which is why most people are usually pre-dosed with Tylenol and Benadryl, but we'll talk a little bit more about this in the risk and benefit of blood transfusions. And then finally, just a quick update on kind of things like different types of packed red blood cells. You may have heard of things like irradiated cells, washed cells, or CMV negative cells, especially all you interns out there who are ordering the different types of cells for transfusion. You may see that option. So what those things mean, irradiated red cells just means that these are for patients at risk of transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. And that means that the components are irradiated by gamma or x-rays within 14 days of donation. And because of this, the shelf life is about 14 days after irradiation. Washed red cells are for patients who have recurrent or severe allergic reaction to red cells in general. And it's also for patients with IgA deficiency with anti-IgA antibodies if red cells from an IgA deficient donor is not available. And again, the shelf life is about 14 days after washing. And then finally, the CMV negative red cells are cells that come from donors who are known CMV negative, and this is required for newborn babies because CMV can be fatal. And in our case, Nick, I know whenever we do pubs, um, we have to always transfuse CMV negative red cells. Okay, Nick, so red blood cells, what else is there in blood? Yeah, so platelets are another great component of blood. We get them also from whole blood donation, but then when you centrifuge the blood, you get this buffy coat that comes between the red cells and the plasma layers. Um, these get pooled from a few donations to the plasma of one of the donors. This ultimately results in something called like pooled platelets or a platelet pack. So that way, when you give a transfusion of platelets, it's actually considered a four pack or a six pack or even a 10 pack of platelets, depending kind of on your institution. Again, the volume of a platelet transfusion is generally about 300 cc's um, and platelets can be stored at room temperature, actually 20 to 24 degrees Celsius, as long as they have constant agitation. The shelf life for platelets though is really, really short and um, only about five days. One other type of donation that can be given for platelets is known as an apheresis donation. These platelets come from a single donor and are apheresed right there, so the platelets just get separated out straight away. This results in only one donor per pack of platelets, and the volume is around 200 cc's for this. Again, these are also stored at room temperature with agitation and last about five days. Okay, now platelets are not something that I feel like we transfuse frequently, especially compared to red blood cells. So why use it? Well, one reason I think is out there and obvious is like when there are low platelets. But what exactly is low? 
Most institutions will have some sort of threshold. For instance, if platelets are under 50,000 per microliter and the patient needs urgent or emergent surgery or is having active bleeding, some places may put a threshold for platelets needing to be over 100,000 if there's a brain bleed or CNS bleed. Um, if a patient is not bleeding or not having any ongoing threat for bleeding, like a need for surgery, you can consider platelets keeping them above 10,000 to prevent spontaneous bleeding. If a patient otherwise has a coagulopathy but is not bleeding, you can increase that threshold somewhere around 20 to 30,000 before considering transfusion. Platelets still have to be cross-matched um, for ABO and RH antigens. So again, you can't just get platelets straight away. They do have to be matched to the particular donor and recipient. There are also different types of platelets, kind of similar to what Faye talked about for red blood cells. One, kind of as we talked about, irradiated platelets, these kind of same process, same reason to give them as irradiated red cells. There are human leukocyte antigen or HLA selected platelets, and there are also human platelet antigen or HPA selected platelets. The population to keep in mind with these are patients who have neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, or NAIT, N-A-I-T. And this is kind of akin to alloimmunization, but for platelets, where maternal antibodies attack baby platelets. These types of platelets, again, HLA or HPA selected, should be used to transfuse babies, again, with NATE. All right, Faye, we're not done with all of the components of blood. I think we've still got a couple more to go. We do. Um, so the next thing that I wanted to talk about is plasma, which is sometimes referred to as fresh frozen plasma. And we'll talk about why we uh, name it such. So first of all, plasma is obtained from whole blood donation or component donation by apheresis, just like how platelets are. And usually it's frozen soon after collection to maintain the activity of the blood clotting factors and can be stored for up to three years when they're frozen. And thawed FFP can be stored for up to 24 hours. We use it because FFP actually contains all of the clotting factors, but the amount will kind of depend on the amount from the donor. So it's not always consistent across every single unit of FFP, but just know that it does contain all clotting factors. And the volume is usually around 250 to 300 cc's, depending on your institution. This can be given to patients who have a coagulopathy or who are bleeding and need massive blood transfusion. And in that case, you know, you should be replacing those patients who have a ton of blood requirement, you should replace one to one to one. Right. Kind of building off of FFP is cryoprecipitate. And I feel like I always get cryo and FFP mixed up, um, Me too. but it actually is simpler to remember than you think. So again, as Faye said, FFP has all of the clotting factors. Cryoprecipitate actually comes from FFP. You basically thaw FFP to about four degrees Celsius, and this produces something called a cryoglobulin that has rich amounts of fibrinogen, factor eight, and vanillin factor. Cryoprecipitate thus does not contain all of the clotting factors, but is rich in those particular factors. This is usually used in single donor packs or pools. Again, we use this actually, and it was originally developed for the treatment of hemophilia or factor eight deficiency. Um, it's more concentrated in lower volume than FFP. One pack of cryo is only about 50 cc. So you can really use this in situations where your patient is coagulopathic, um, but also fluid overloaded, or if you're trying to treat specific factor deficiencies, again, like hemophilia. Other things about cryo is that it should be stored frozen, and similarly to FFP, it has a shelf life of around three years. 
The next few things that we're going to talk about are not as frequently used, but something that we need to also talk about is granulocytes. So again, not going to talk about this one as much, but essentially it contains white blood cells, specifically neutrophils, because that's another component of whole blood. It's controversial, but sometimes it can be used for patients with life-threatening conditions where they have low neutrophil counts, such as infections. The other things that we can give are things like human albumin solution, which you know sometimes can be used uh, in certain situations where maybe you're trying to keep um, some of that blood volume within the the vascular space, though again, that's controversial. And because it doesn't have any clotting factors or blood group antibodies, cross-matching is not needed. Um, and then specifically, there are other things that we can give like clotting factor concentrates, like single factor concentrates, and this can be used for treatments of inherited coagulation issues like hemophilia A, where you can use recombinant factor 8C, for example. Um, you can also transfuse things like PCC or prothrombin complex concentrate, which contains factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. And then last but not least, there are also immunoglobulin solutions. And I think a lot of times we think about this as in like IVIG, which is usually usually manufactured from a large pool of donor plasma. And these will contain antibodies to viruses that are common in the population. Specifically, you know, one thing that we think about as OBGYNs um, is that there can be specific immunoglobulins that can be made from selected donors who have very high concentrations of certain antibody levels. So the biggest one is, of course, ROGAM or anti-D immunoglobulin. Globulin. All right. So I think that covers all of the things that we expect to see in our blood or what things we can get out of blood, I guess. And it sounds like blood transfusions are really great, right? We can take kind of the stuff that we need, use it here and there, and hopefully prevent our patients from having bleeding issues. But there are risks. And so let's go next into discussing benefits and risks of blood transfusion. I'll start with benefits and how to safely give blood. Basically, as we've discussed already on the podcast today, blood transfusion can be life-saving in many folks, um, but we need to do blood transfusion safely. We already discussed the importance of typing and cross-matching blood products. You want to ensure that you have the right patient, the right blood, and at the right time. So again, when you talk with your nursing colleagues, and you, there's a big focus on correct patient identification appropriate documentation and communication, and monitoring the patient during a blood transfusion for transfusion reactions. Patient consent, of course, needs to be obtained prior to blood transfusion. Um, and then I think kind of the most interesting thing and one of the biggest changes from just the course of my residency is about kind of giving the appropriate amount of blood or not more than is indicated. There's actually a study from your crew over at PenFay that was really, really nice um, talking about giving one unit of blood postpartum instead of two units of blood postpartum in women with acute blood loss. Because I feel like as a resident, I always was like, just transfuse two, but never thought about just transfusing one for whatever reason. Yeah. And it was a nice study that showed that, you know, most of the people that were giving that one unit to, that's all you needed to give. You don't need to give that second unit, which of course can prevent a lot of other complications. Yeah. So speaking of complications, actually, why don't we go towards that or talk about risks? Sure. So mostly morbidity and mortality from blood transfusion is preventable because a lot of it can happen from when wrong blood is given. And so ensuring that the correct blood is being given, like you said, Nick, can actually prevent a lot of these. So we're going to talk a little bit about the non-infectious and then the infectious risks of blood. 
So I'll start with the non-infectious risks. So the first is a febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction, which is usually what we consider a mild reaction. And this can usually just be treated with Benadryl or Tylenol pretreatment or even at the time that it happens. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what to do if essentially the patient continues to have anaphylaxis. If they continue to have other reactions, that would be a reason to stop the blood transfusion. But actually, if there's just a low-grade fever, you can sometimes just continue to transfuse. Another reaction is an allergic reaction, which can be mild, something like urticaria, to severe, like angioedema or anaphylaxis, in which case you definitely need to stop the transfusion. There's, of course, always the possibility of acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, which is usually due to that ABO incompatibility. And again, that means you need to stop the transfusion immediately. There's also a possibility of bacterial contamination of blood. Usually this is quite rare, but can lead to sepsis, and this is usually seen later on. And then, of course, there are other things like transfusion-associated circulatory overload, which is also known as TACO, kind of like my favorite um, acronym in like all of medicine, which basically is worsening pulmonary edema within six hours of transfusion. And then also the other thing is trolley or transfusion-related acute lung injury, which is caused by antibodies in donor blood reacting with a patient's neutrophils, monocytes, or pulmonary endothelium, and can lead to leaking of plasma into the lung alveolar space, which then leads to cough and frothy sputum, shortness of breath, hypotension, and fevers. And this will actually present usually within two hours of transfusion, so even sooner than something like TACO. And then your chest x-ray will show these bilateral nodular shadowing in the lungs. It sometimes can be confused with acute heart failure because of these this presentation, but actually treating with diuretics is not going to help, and you may actually need to intubate and give other supportive care to treat this. We're going to post a little table on the website to help you differentiate between trolley and taco, um, but just know that with taco, a lot of times that is just in a pulmonary edema or circulatory overload that you can treat with diuretics, but you can't treat trolley with diuretics. So in terms of um, the other things that I had kind of alluded to is when a patient has an acute reaction, so having that super high fever, um, having angioedema, the first thing to do is to stop the transfusion and undergo a rapid assessment of vital signs and make sure to check the patient ID and the blood ID. It's just like the number one thing to think about, right? Does the patient ID match the blood ID? Because if you're transfusing the wrong blood, then absolutely you need to let the blood bank know, send that blood back, and probably you know place something into your hospital monitoring system for safety. You're gonna do your usual evaluation of your ABC, so airway, breathing, circulation. And if it's just a mild reaction, meaning a temperature of just over 38 degrees, paritis or rash, you can actually consider treatment with things like Benadryl, Tylenol, but you could continue the transfusion. However, if there's increasing temperature greater than 39 degrees, life-threatening changes like an allergic reaction with anaphylaxis, or something that changes when you continue that blood transfusion, you need to stop immediately and proceed to resuscitate the patient as needed. So that's kind of the um, non-infectious risks, Nick. What about those infectious risks? Because I think a lot of times patients are really afraid of getting blood because they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's in it. I don't know who it's from. What if I get something like HIV? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's actually a very common question. Um, and it's helpful to have numbers for this for patients too, which we're going to talk about some of these numbers and post them on the website too. So in the United States, risks for viral infection bottom line are very, very low because every blood donation is screened for a list of things, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, 
human T-cell lymphoma virus, syphilis, West Nile virus, and Zika virus. Additionally, every first-time donor is tested for Chagas disease. Um, and then finally, an interesting one to talk about is Kritzfeld-Jakob disease. You may know that as like mad cow disease is what it was called, but it's caused by a prion. Um, and this first appeared in the UK back in 1996. Folks cannot donate blood if they've been in the UK three or more months from 1980 to 1996. If a patient's been diagnosed with Kritzfeld-Jakob disease or had a blood transfusion in UK, France, or Ireland between 1980 and the present, they're also ineligible to donate blood. Um, specifically with respect to risks and things to keep in mind for your patient, the risk of HIV from a blood transfusion in the US is one in one and a half to two million. Hepatitis, one in 200,000 to 360,000. Hep C, one to one in two million and human T-cell lymphoma virus, one in two million. So again, really, really low odds overall of getting one of those viral infections. Um, a lot, a lot of safeguards on blood. So I think overall we can be reassuring to patients on this. One particular challenging point I've found too, Faye, is in talking with patients who ultimately decline blood transfusion, um, whether that is because of risks or due to cultural or religious beliefs. Um, why don't we talk for a minute kind of about best strategies in counseling and working with folks who choose to decline blood transfusion? Sure. So I think the first thing is we should respect the values, beliefs, and cultural backgrounds of all of our patients and be sure that we are having a frank discussion with them about blood transfusion and the components of blood. Um, and to be sure that we talk about why we give blood transfusion and when. And I think here is where it's super important to understand the different um, components of blood because there are some patients who may accept certain components of blood, but not accept others. Um, specifically, for example, patients who are Jehovah's Witness will refuse transfusion of whole blood and primary blood components. So sometimes things like red cells, platelets, white cells, and plasma, but they may accept certain derivatives of primary blood components. So for example, human albumin or cryo or clotting factors or immunoglobulins. Um, and so it's important to make sure that when you're talking to your patients to understand what parts of the blood that they may accept and what parts they don't. Because I think it's really difficult, of course, to have that conversation in the middle of an emergency, right? The other thing that we should talk about is discussion of how to save blood cells and discuss other methods of decreasing the likelihood of need for transfusion or of bad outcomes from having heavy bleeding. So the first is consideration of intraoperative cell saver, which certain institutions will have, as well as things like apheresis, dialysis, or cardiac bypass. And these are usually okay with patients who decline blood transfusion, but it's always a good thing to talk to them about. And then sometimes if there are patients who start off anemic and maybe the procedure is something that can be held off, we can always consider like an iron transfusion if we think that it is because of iron deficiency that's causing their anemia. Last but not least, you can always discuss autologous transfusion if possible. So if a patient can, again, hold off on the procedure, maybe if they are okay with receiving their own blood, um, that's also something to discuss as well. And then last but not least, remember to sign those advanced decision documents. Usually most hospitals will have some form of these about which blood products are acceptable and which are not in the case of emergency where you can't directly ask the patient. 
And then I think the last thing to know is that in an emergency or in critically ill patients with temporary incapacity, these patients should be given all life-saving treatments, including blood transfusions, unless there's a clear evidence of prior refusal documented um, on them or in their chart. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our blood transfusion episode. So let's go ahead and try and summarize here. Sure. So we started off talking about the different things that we can get out of a blood donation. So we talked about whole blood to start, blood that contains basically everything, and that's what you donate. Um, But then we talked about red blood cells or packed red blood cells, which are just the red blood cells centrifuged down from a whole blood donation and some preservatives added to it. Again, we think about red blood cell transfusion with a hemoglobin less than eight, if that's not at the baseline for the patient, if they're symptomatic for anemia, and generally recommends transfusion at less than seven if they're postpartum, postoperative, or if there's wound healing. Patients with sickle cell disease and other things like thalassemia, often the transfusion threshold may be different depending on what is needed to prevent crisis in those diseases. The next component we spoke about are platelets, which again can be either received from whole blood donation, which is then centrifuged, um, and then that buffy coat of multiple donors are then added to the plasma of one donor, in which case you may have pooled platelets, or you can just have apheresis donation from one donor. The volume um, and the amount of platelets may differ a little bit depending on how the platelets are obtained, but remember that platelets can be stored at room temperature as long as there's constant agitation and that they are usually good for about five days. And we usually transfuse it um, for certain reasons, things like if platelets are less than 50,000 and the patient needs some type of urgent or emergent surgery or actively bleeding, but can be as high as 100,000 if there's a CNS bleed, um, and maybe even less than 10,000 as a threshold for transfusion transfusion of the patient is not bleeding, and that's just to prevent a spontaneous bleed. Next, we talked about plasma or fresh frozen plasma, again, which is something that just contains all of the blood clotting factors. FFP can be stored frozen for up to three years, and thawed FFP can be stored for 24 hours. Again, it contains all of the clotting factors, but the amount depends on the amount coming from the specific donor and is given generally to patients who are suspected of having a coagulopathy or in patients who are in need of massive transfusion at that one-to-one-to-one ratio of red cells to platelets to FFP. The thing that sometimes gets confused with FFP, I feel like, is cryoprecipitate, which, remember, is actually created from thawing FFP and producing a cryoglobulin that is rich in things like fibrinogen factor 8 and von Willebrand's factor. So remember, cryoprecipitate is different from FFP because it does not contain all the clotting factors, but it also usually comes in a lower volume than FFP and so can sometimes still be used for a patient that is coagulopathic but may also um, be fluid overloaded. It also has a shelf life of about three years when it is frozen. Hey, we then started to talk about risks and benefits of blood transfusion. Obviously, there are benefits to blood transfusion and that it's life-saving for many folks. Um, But one of the important things in terms of achieving that benefit is safety surrounding blood transfusion. Ensure you have the right patient, the right blood, and at the right time, and not giving any more blood than is indicated. For instance, postpartum, consider giving one unit of blood instead of two units for patients with symptomatic anemia. 
there are of course risks to blood transfusion um, and the types that we consider are non-infectious and infectious. Non-infectious include things like febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reactions, allergic reactions including anaphylaxis, acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, bacterial contamination, transfusion associated circulatory overload or TACO, and transfusion related acute lung injury or trolley. For infectious risks, we talked about the fact that all blood in the United States is screened for a number of different viral infections, including hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, human T-cell lymphoma virus, syphilis, West Nile virus, and Zika virus. All first-time donors are additionally tested for Chagas disease. And then while we don't screen necessarily for Creutzfeldt-Jakob or prion disease, patients who have been in the United Kingdom or other parts of Europe between 1980 and 1996 may be excluded from blood donation. There are some patients that will decline blood transfusion, and it is important that we respect their values, beliefs, and cultural backgrounds, but we should remember to have frank discussions with them about exactly why blood transfusions are used and also the different components of blood to figure out exactly what it is that patients will and will not accept, and also a frank discussion with them about how to decrease the risk of needing blood transfusion. So for example, using things like cell saver, or will patients accept things like apheresis, dialysis, or cardiac bypass, and also methods like using an iron transfusion or perhaps even autologous transfusion if it is possible before a necessary procedure. All patients in an emergency or critically ill patients who have temporary incapacity must be given life-saving treatments, including blood transfusion, unless there's clear documented evidence of prior refusal. All right, Faye, I think that does it for Creogs Over Coffee Live once again. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So if you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. Having trouble differentiating between taco and trolley? No worries. We're going to be posting our information on our website for this show, as well as all of our other shows, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a suggestion for a future episode, or just want to say hi, especially when one of you might be in Seattle or in Philly or anywhere else we might be, email us, creogsovercoffee, gmail.com. Mm-hmm.